When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. This is the podcast where I live tell you stories from ancient Greek mythology in a way that can only be described as casual and ranty. Thank you all for your patience this week. I've sorted out some ways to make sure the recording is a little more bearable. Hopefully I'll master it in the coming weeks and it will sound even better, but that remains to be seen. This week's episode is part two in the origins of the oh-so-famous Trojan War. 
Last week, we covered Peleus and Thetis, the births of Achilles and Paris, and the infamous judgment of Paris. Where we left off, Paris had been told by Aphrodite that he could have a woman named Helen of Sparta. She is, apparently, the most beautiful and desirable woman in the world, and so Paris picks Aphrodite as the fairest. Last we heard, Aphrodite hadn't told Paris anything about Helen, nor had she told him how and when he could have her, just that he could have another human being simply because she's female and doesn't get the privilege of free will. As I mentioned last time, you'll remember Helen and Clytemnestra from the episode about the many, many children that were fathered by Zeus. Helen and Clytemnestra's mother is Leda, who was married to King Tyndareus of Sparta. Tyndareus had failed to sacrifice his daughters, one of the few men to actually have the guts to, you know, not sacrifice his children when told to by the gods. But as a result for not sacrificing his daughters, said not sacrificed daughters had been cursed by Aphrodite. But I mean, other than that, who is Helen? And who is her sister, Clytemnestra? This is episode 23, Trojan War Origins Part 2. When a seer tells you to kill your daughter, just don't. Where our story of Helen and Clytemnestra picks up, Clytemnestra has married Agamemnon, king of Mycenae, or Argos. It's likely these were the same places with different names. Throughout, I may or may not refer to them by both names. Sort of mythologically, I would say Agamemnon is famous for being the king of Argos, but historically, he's famous for being the king of Mycenae, even though it's debated whether he's actually been proven to be real, but we'll get there. So, Clytemnestra has married Agamemnon, and Tyndareus has just secured a husband for Helen. She's been pursued endlessly, because of course, she's the most beautiful and desirable woman in the world. Odysseus, king of Ithaca, has already tried his hand, and Menestheus, king of Athens, Indomenius, king of Crete, Ajax of Salamis... So many more. She's hot, remember. And how did Tyndareus pick Helen's husband? Money. Each suitor was told to offer up an amount. How much will you pay to marry this hottie? Tyndareus might have asked. It's Menelaus who offers enough money, and so it's Menelaus that Tyndareus decides he will choose to marry his hot daughter. Conveniently enough, Menelaus is also the brother of Agamemnon, so It seems only appropriate to Tyndareus that Helen marry Menelaus. Sisters married to brothers, how very quaint it will be. What could possibly go wrong? But Tyndareus is concerned. See, there had been so many suitors for Helen, but only one of them would be successfully wealthy enough and would get to marry Helen. What would the other suitors do when he told them? Would there be retribution? Violence? In order to prevent any upset, before Tyndareus voices his decision to the men who'd made their offers, he makes all the suitors promise that not only would they not make a fuss about the result of his decision, but they would defend the marriage. He also made them promise that, if necessary, they would even take up arms in defense of the marriage. Tyndareus was only thinking logically, because, if you'll recall, Helen had been kidnapped before. She'd been taken hostage by that shithead Theseus and was rescued by her brothers when she was a child. Tyndareus' plan works. 
All those suitors, they promised that they would indeed defend the marriage. And so Tyndarius told the men gathered that he'd chosen Menelaus. Not only that, Tyndarius tells Menelaus that on top of getting to marry his super hot daughter, when Tyndarius dies, Menelaus will inherit the throne of Sparta. It's not long before Tyndarius does die, and Menelaus does inherit the throne, becoming king of Sparta. Oh, and by the way, Agamemnon and Menelaus, well, they are the sons of a man called Atreus, and a woman called Aerope. And, well, there's a curse on the house of Atreus. So, I think you probably have a pretty good idea how well this is going to (laughs) go. a short while after Menelaus became king of Sparta, young Paris is getting a bit restless. He hadn't had any update from Aphrodite, and so he still had no idea when he would finally get his woman. Finally, he figured he'd just go for it. He'll travel to Sparta and he'll take her, because of course this was his right, he thought. I mean, a goddess had promised him after all. So when his patience finally ran out, Paris simply set sail. He took a ship from Troy, and he headed to Sparta. He didn't have a plan, he figured he'd just play it by ear, you know, as you do when you're claiming ownership of another human being you've never met. When Paris reaches Sparta, he's met with the highest level of hospitality from Menelaus and his new wife and queen, Helen. Also, the couple live there with their young daughter, who's named Hermione. She doesn't figure much into the story, but her name's Hermione. This hospitality that Menelaus and Helen show to Paris is yet another example of Xenia, the guest-host relationship that was so vital to ancient Greece, and that plays into so, so many Greek myths where crazy shit goes down. It was expected that Menelaus and Helen would treat Paris like gold. He's a guest from a faraway land, but also, and most importantly, he's a guest who's on their level. Like, he's a prince to their king and queen. He's worthy of their welcome and their hospitality. And in return, it's expected that Paris would treat Menelaus and Helen with equal respect while he's staying in their home, which, of course, he does, obviously. Did you catch that sarcasm? Paris brought Helen gifts. Endless gifts. I don't know if he was trying to bribe her into going with him. I mean, he felt like she was his, so maybe he was just being nice before he stole her away? Who knows? There are countless versions of how this next part goes down. Do Helen and Paris fall truly madly deeply in love? Does Aphrodite place some kind of goddess of love spell on Helen to make her fall in love with Paris? Did Paris straight up rape and abduct her? There's no consensus. Frankly, only one of these stands above as being, you know, the most awful. So, obviously, I prefer the interpretations that where she's not raped and kidnapped, so we're going with one of those. Either she was actually in love, or it was God-induced love. Unfortunately, it's not entirely relevant either way, because, you know, women had zero agency. Regardless, when Menelaus is called off to the island of Crete to handle something or other, Helen and Paris take the opportunity, and they get the hell out of Sparta. Now, According to my trusty book, The Greek Myths, before they ran away, Paris, quote, stole all of Menelaus's personal possessions, his wife, his golden tableware, his purple dyed cloth, clearly all things that should be lumped under the general term of possessions. Now, if it's not 
already clear, this is not how one is supposed to act when one is a guest of someone else. This is not the proper adherence to Xenia, and as a result, trouble will brew. Trouble in the form of a pretty messy war. After leaving Sparta, Helen and Paris stopped for a time on the island of Cyprus. They wanted to throw the Greeks off their scent, and they also basically just wanted a luxurious honeymoon, even though, you know, they're not actually married because Helen's already married to someone else. So they live it up in some bananas luxury for a while before they'll return to Troy, and Paris will make the very awkward introduction of... the woman he stole? Meanwhile, though, the Greeks are coordinating their response to this major, major faux pas. See, Menelaus has returned home to Sparta, he's learned that Helen has run off with Paris, and he's a tad upset, a bit miffed. Menelaus rallies all the most important Greek kings and aristocrats, and he calls on them under the pretext of the pledge that they had taken with Tyndarius. They had promised to defend the marriage. Never pledge something so vague. It won't go well. So all the most important Greeks, all men, of course, because women aren't important, were called to assemble at the city of Aulis to plan their attack on Troy. Over a thousand ships gathered at Aulis, ships packed full with the best of the best when it comes to warriors and other war-type people. That's the technical term, you know. At this time, Troy is known as one of the most powerful cities in the region. They had allies throughout Asia Minor, and basically the Greeks knew they had to come super-duper prepared if they were going to pose any kind of threat to a city like Troy. At Aulis, it's decided that Menelaus's brother, Agamemnon, will be the leader of the group. A reminder, both are of the house of Atreus. As much as these ships were packed tight with powerful dudes, there were two of the best that were not quite sold on whatever the fuck was happening. It seems awfully excessive, they probably thought. Odysseus of Ithaca was pretending he was straight up crazy in an attempt to avoid going to this war. Creative, to say the least. See, Odysseus, yes, you guessed it, had heard from an oracle that if he joined this group headed to what was sure to be an epic war he wouldn't see his home again for ages and ages. He wasn't keen on that. His wife had just had a baby, he was happy, so he was feigning Cray. He was right to try, for obvious his-name-is-a-book reasons. How did he pretend to be crazy, you ask? I'm glad you asked. When Agamemnon's men arrived in Ithaca to, presumably, drag Odysseus to Alice kicking and screaming, Odysseus decides to plow his fields using a team of an ox and an ass, which I'm told is not a productive way of farming. As I've said before, I'm no farmer. Though it does also sound a little funny looking. And not only that, but when he's plowing with this odd couple, he's also sowing salt instead of seeds. Oh, Odysseus, you're crazy. When Agamemnon's guys see this happening... One of them is skeptical, so he takes Odysseus's newborn son away from his mother, Penelope, and he places the baby in front of Odysseus's plow. Oh no, thinks Odysseus, not baby Telemachus. And so he stops his plow just before he would have killed his own son. Oh shucks, I'm sure he said, my ruse has been uncovered. Frankly, I don't think that really proves anything. You can be a bit delusional and think plowing with an ox and an ass and planting salt is the best way to run your farm, while still being well enough to say, do not run over baby. But whatever, apparently this is how they found him out. And so, 
Odysseus was brought to Aulis and would participate in the expedition to Troy. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There was another holdout, though. A young gun by the name of Achilles, who was basically the golden child of the Greeks when it came to battle, and just generally being a warrior. Achilles was the best. Brad Pitt in the early 2000s level best. Achilles' mother, the goddess Thetis, was pretty protective over her son. She had placed him with the centaur Chiron. You know the one, the hero maker. 
That's where Achilles was, safely away from the fray, for the moment. But Thetis learned that her son was essential to the fall of Troy. He was the key. And so if he didn't go to Troy, he could live a long life, but he wouldn't be remembered. Or he could go to Troy, die young, but super well-known and famous. Thetis was a smart lady, and she didn't pick fame for her son over, you know, not dying. She took Achilles out of Chiron's care and disguised him as a girl. She then placed him on the island of Skyros, where he would be kept safe by the king there, Lycomedes. Achilles agreed to this because while he was safe on the island of Skyros, he would have the time to decide for himself whether or not he wanted fame and death, or life and not being widely known and remembered. Apparently his disguise wasn't really a disguise either. Everyone on the island knew that Achilles wasn't a girl. He even had a girlfriend, but they went along with it when visitors arrived. They kept his secret. They called him Pyrrha because he had fair hair, a fact that I find particularly endearing. But Agamemnon is sneaky and pushy and generally just a dick. He sends men to Skyros to bring Achilles back. He needs him. He intentionally sends some of the most cunning Greeks. Odysseus, Nestor, Phoenix, and Diomedes. They set about planning a super-sexist and misogynistic test. They bring with them endless so-called girly gifts for the king's daughters. The girls fawn over the gifts, except for one who was more interested in examining the weapons, you know, because bitches be shopping. And then Odysseus sounds an alarm for danger, and of course the females panic and hide because that's just what women do. But one of them ran quickly to pick up the armor and a weapon to defend the city. And so they knew who Achilles was. And also, I say again, this shit was imagined by men who had zero faith in the strength of women. Now that he was found out, Achilles had no choice but to follow these guys back to Aulis. And he left behind his girlfriend that he'd apparently fallen in love with while he lived on Skyros and who he had impregnated. A little later, she gives birth to his son, Neoptolemus. Finally, everyone necessary is assembled at Alice. They can make their way to Troy. Except, there's one major problem. There is no wind. Also, FYI, no motors on boats, you know, in case you hadn't gathered. They need wind. They have oars, but that's not enough, not for this journey. It's like, as soon as they're ready to go, the wind is just 100% against them. And not just, like, not working to their advantage, but actively making it impossible for them to set sail. Strong winds were simply pushing the ships back into the harbor at Alice. They couldn't do anything. Now, prior to this trouble with the wind, Agamemnon had been hunting for deer outside of Alice. He had found his way to a grove that was sacred to the goddess Artemis. In the sacred grove, he'd killed a stag— and then he'd bragged that he was just as good a hunter as Artemis. Why he thought this was a good idea is beyond me. What have I said about comparing yourself to the gods? Needless to say, Artemis was less than thrilled. And so when these issues with the wind pop up, Agamemnon consults a seer, Calchas. Calchas tells him that Artemis is punishing him because he was you know, a complete tool, and that the only way to change the winds would be to sacrifice his daughter, Iphigenia. Why the virgin goddess of the hunt, who was notorious for disliking men and surrounding herself with women, would wish that as a punishment is beyond me. But that's what a man told Agamemnon. 
And did Agamemnon look at Calchas with horror and disgust at the thought of sacrificing his own daughter for something so silly as good wind? No, of course not. He decided immediately that it was worth the sacrifice. He wanted to go to war. Arguably, he didn't care much about even getting Helen back for his brother, but he did want to go to war. And this was the way to do it. He needed that wind. Plus, he had two other children, Orestes and Electra, a boy and a girl. What did he need with another girl? Agamemnon sends for his daughter Iphigenia from his home in Mycenae. He tells Iphigenia and her mother, Clytemnestra, that he's sending for his daughter because he's found her a husband. He tells them that she will get to marry the hero Achilles, who they call swift-footed as an appealing epithet. He's got fast feet, girl. Of course, Achilles is a big star at this point. He's the most sought after when it comes to warriors, and he's pretty. He's someone any father would want his daughter to marry. And maybe any daughter would want to marry if, you know, she'd realize she didn't really have much say, so it was best to be happy with a guy that was pretty and seemed nice enough. So Clytemnestra helps Iphigenia dress for her wedding, and the two of them set off for Aulis to meet Iphigenia's husband-to-be. They arrive at Aulis, and all seems pretty normal. Clytemnestra and Iphigenia have no idea why they're really there. It all seems prepared for a wedding. There's an altar where they'll be married. Iphigenia is led to the altar, all the while expecting that shortly she'll see this man who she'll marry. But, alas, Agamemnon walks her toward the altar, and when she gets there, without hesitation, he slaughters his own daughter, all for some fucking wind. Now, there are versions of this story where Iphigenia isn't killed after all, which is kind of refreshing. In many versions, at the last moment, she's replaced with an animal, and she's whisked off in either a cloud or some other magical means of transportation, and she's brought to Taurus, where she's made a priestess of Artemis. Honestly, that sounds more like Artemis to me. She's not one to sacrifice a woman for the sake of a man. But even with that story, the point is that Agamemnon was willing to do it. He tried to do it, and he thought he did it. And if Iphigenia, alive or not, would no longer be able to live with her loving mother and her siblings just in her life, the damage was done. Yet another instance of the curse on the house of Atreus. And now that Agamemnon has been willing to sacrifice his daughter for the good wind, the Greeks are free to start. They set sail in the direction of Troy, where so much will go down, and so much will come from even after the war is done. Again, someone's got a name that's a book. This is the origin of the Trojan War. And that, my friends, is the beginning. The beginning of a war that will last ten years and, like I said, spawn countless crazy-ass stories throughout mythology, Roman included. The origins of one of the founders of Rome is even a part of this. Guys, it's got everything. Now, like I said, I'm not totally sure if I'm going to go deep into the story of Troy all at once. We'll kind of see how it goes I'm hoping to do an episode on the historicity of it all, what is real and what is not real, and 
My God, what? Is Agamemnon, is he real? Somebody thinks he's real. And so, whatever the next episode is, it'll be a surprise, because even I don't know what I'm going to do. Now, I have a little housekeeping. I have an announcement for all you listeners on SoundCloud. I will be moving the podcast off of SoundCloud sometime in the next couple of weeks. Unfortunately, it's just a really minimally useful host in terms of podcasts. And basically, I can't do any of the things I want and need to do by staying with them. Also, it's more expensive than many other podcast hosts are, so I need the cheaper. I hope I won't lose you all as listeners. You can find the podcast in countless other places. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and a zillion other platforms I've never even heard of, but apparently are places you can listen to the podcast. Also, I'll probably be on TuneIn shortly. I'm just waiting to hear from them. So really, I don't need to lose you. There's so many options. So please find me elsewhere. And thank you so much for listening anyway. As always, you can follow me everywhere. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. It's all at MythsBaby. Thank you again. I'll be back in two weeks. And I'm Liv. I love this shit. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol the danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. 
It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.